University's talk show, Taking Old School Viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to myself? Welcome to Folk You Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, in using our interests, our skills, and our beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. This season, we're dedicating to what is essential. What are the skills, the knowledge, the resources we most need to be a resilient community member of the future? Today, we are going to learn more about the ancient healing of traditional Chinese medicine. But first, where are you listening from today? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, the water, the air, where you live, work, and play? Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Clahoos, the Kla'aman, and the Hamako peoples. I'd like to take a moment to thank this land, the people who have walked this land through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. All right, I am so excited. Today we are joined by neighbor and Chinese medicine educator and, uh, and a practitioner of many of these fine arts, Janine Mela. Myla. Myla. Um, she's going to lead us through a little bit of education on the subject. Welcome to Folk U Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, such a pleasure. Okay, let's start a little bit with you, about your background, your education, and how you came to be interested in traditional Chinese medicine. Yeah, I guess where it all started for me was um, I did my yoga teacher training and uh, I guess it was maybe 12 years ago or so. And that kind of opened up a lot of different possibilities and pathways for me. But I was still in university and um, I came back from my teacher training and I just had this sort of like whole body shutdown. I had all of these different symptoms come up and I, I was a mess. I had this like crazy eczema and these body aches and I, I just had all these weird symptoms that kind of appeared out of nowhere um, and so I went to many different doctors and clinics and I all of my separate issues were being treated separately and sort of superficially with ointments or things but I didn't feel like I wasn't feeling very understood or supported by the medical system and it was sort of my first experience of really needing that kind of support and not being able to fully get it from somewhere. So I, I was frustrated and um, a fellow friend of mine sent me to this woman who practiced traditional Chinese medicine. And I remember the first time I sat in her living room, it was very like 
warm and welcoming. And she spent two hours with me just getting my history and information. And just even that was so healing after having sat with doctors and receiving only five minutes of their time. You know, it was it was so powerful, even just her interest and curiosity and ability to connect the dots and all these different things that had seemed separate and all of a sudden uh, were understood as a whole picture. So that was kind of like my first initiation into it. And, and I worked with that woman for um, a few years and, and really worked through some deep healing in my body, mind and emotions, which is a big part of traditional Chinese medicine is understanding the relationship between all the different levels, not just physical, but emotional and psychological and spiritual and environmental and cultural and all the different layers. Um, so that was sort of my initiation. And then I took off traveling and was kind of on a journey. And when I came back, I realized that's really what I was wanting to do. So I, I was in Montreal at the time and, and I did a training there. And um, I had always really been interested in working with my hands and felt a really intuitive sense with my hands and uh, wasn't drawn so much to needles and the woman I had worked with was an acupressurist and worked with all, all kinds of different tools so I ended up learning acupressure and I um, was trained in a traditional Chinese medicine context so learning how to take the pulse and read the tongue and understand the organ imbalances and uh, diving deeper into also the the dietetic and the food aspects so yeah, I trained for in that for a few years and um, and then had a practice for about nine years in Montreal, private practice. And um, here I am on Cortez. <laughs> Aha, lucky us. <laughs> uh, so you you gave us a little clues in that intro that when we're talking about traditional Chinese medicine, that there's something um, maybe holistic or slightly different than how we're used to talking about medicine in the West. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what the definition or how you think about health from a traditional Chinese medicine perspective? Yeah, one of the ways that I like to think of it is um, this idea in the Eastern philosophy that the body is considered a garden. So in a garden, you have all these different ecosystems that are functioning in a way that's interdependent. So the sun and the water and the seeds and the soil and the wind and all these different elements influence the health and the capacity for the garden to thrive. Um, and in that model, there one thing cannot coexist without the other, right? So there's this interdependence that is really at the foundation of, of health in that garden. And in that in that perspective, the doctor or the the doctor is kind of like the gardener. So the gardener comes in and just tweaks little things to help to support the garden to thrive. But the garden essentially knows how to thrive. You know, in a permaculture model, if you leave things to go wild, they end up just kind of knowing what to do and knowing how to um, generate resources from different places. So that's the that's sort of the way that the Eastern model looks at it. And from a Western perspective, you know, it's often based on this idea that the body has these separate parts that can sort of be isolated and removed and are more independent from each other. So sometimes that perspective can be seen as more of like a, the body is a machine to understand and to uh, replace when there's a crisis. But um, in that, that model is based more on intervention, right? Which And so the doctor is more like a mechanic that comes in and fixes it and brings a tune-up. So both models... Um, can be effective in different moments, and we really need intervention as well as prevention. So in the model of prevention, we're sort of 
preparing for adversity. So there's this quote from one of the ancient Chinese texts, the Neijing. Uh, I can't remember it exactly, but it's something like um, about digging a well. Digging a well when you're already thirsty is 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 useless, right? You dig a well in preparation for thirst and for drought. So this idea that um, the health of the ecosystem can be something that is um, preserved and maintained rather than something that is only addressed when it's in crisis. So that's sort of the way that that works. So I know that <clears throat> the energy and the and elements are really important when thinking about um, Chinese medicine. So can you talk to us about the different elements um, that make up the sort of perspective of health? Yeah, so um, so there's a model called the five element theory, which is really a big, um, very much at the basis of traditional Chinese medicine. And to kind of continue with that garden metaphor, so you know there are different phases, not only in life, in the cycle of life, but also in the cycle of a day, or in the cycle of the year, or in the cycle of one's lifetime as a whole. So we can sort of map out the five elements in many different ways. We can map them out um, in the seasons. So if we start, uh, the five elements are water, wood, fire, earth, and metal. And so these elements are in an interdependence, and I'll speak a bit about that later. But first, we can just look at this idea that um, we'll start with the wood. Because the wood is really the beginning of the cycle in the sense that it represents the birth of, of yang. And maybe just before I go into the five elements, I can just speak a bit about yin and yang theory, which is kind of like the underlying principle of five element theory as well, where um, yin and yang, you know, many people probably heard about this idea, right? But there are these two energies that uh, are at the basis of all of life, right? So the yin energy is the energy that is nutritive and wet and humidifying and dark and uh, receptive and passive and um, internal. So that's the yin quality. And the yang energy is the energy in nature and within our own body systems, the energy that activates warmth and metabolism and action and sun and um, external and uh, direction, that kind of thing. So these yin and yang energies are relative to each other. They are also inter interdependent. So if one goes up, the other goes down and vice versa. And um, they are, function and coexist in relation to one another. So uh, just like the five elements, they're interdependent. So when we talk about the wood element, the wood element is the birth of the yang in the cycle. So it's sometimes it's called like the little yang because it's really the beginning of uh, springtime. It's when all the sprouts shoot up from the ground and it's that birth of life after a long period of yin or hibernation. So that birth of life comes up from the ground and has a direction and knows where it wants to go. And that the wood element really represents vision, direction, momentum, action, right? So after the rest and hibernation of the winter, there's this new life. It corresponds to the east direction. The color is green. Um, the organs that are associated to it are the liver and gallbladder. So those are the organs that are most active at that time of year. And those organs are... Um, 
govern as well the free flow of chi and energy in the body. So it's a time where we have access to more energy in our body and more momentum and direction in our lives where we feel like we want to start new projects and we want to make things happen. Um, so that corresponds to the beginning of the cycle, the spring. And it also represents birth, just the beginning of life, right? Um, the, the newborn, the new vision, the, the newness of life that is available to us when we're just a little baby. So that's the wood. And from there, we move into the fire. And the fire element is um, represents the peak of summer. So it represents the peak of the yang energy. So the yang builds from the spring, from the little yang of the wood into the full yang of the summer. And uh, in the summertime is where we have most access to sun and light and energy. And we want to be outside. We want to connect with other people. We want to be social. There's this... Um, outward focus of the fire element and the fire element is one that that consumes right so we want to experience life to its fullest we want to have the most epic experiences and adventures in the summertime right <laughs> so that's the energy of the fire is really wanting to experience life and enjoy life and that represents um the summertime but also the period of adolescence so it's the time where we kind of come into ourselves and start to experience life in, in a different way than we when we're a child so that's um that's the fire element and from there, we move to the earth element. And the earth element, it's kind of interesting, actually, because um, I wish we were on the radio, but I wish I could do a drawing right now, <laughs> much more visual. But essentially, these five elements, you can imagine them sort of like in a circle where one feeds the other. So that's called the nourishing cycle. And I'll talk about that a bit later. But um, in one of the original models of five elements, the earth was in the center and all the four other elements came out in every direction. So the earth actually represents sort of the center energy. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So what's interesting about the earth is that it represents the period of transition between the seasons. So there's this period of time, seven and a half days before and after the equinoxes and the solstices. So four times a year. So a period of about 15 days that corresponds to what's called the interseason period. And the interseason period is a is a time where the yin and yang actually come into balance. So if you think of the transition between summer and fall, so summer, we're at the peak of yang, there's the most light, the most energy. And then as we transition into fall, we're moving back into a more yin dominant time. So there's this time frame where the yin and yang actually, before they transition and change, there's a time where they come into balance. And that's that represents the earth element. And I remember reading about this... Um, in one of the ancient texts, this idea that the emperors would actually have a room in the center of their palace that would be dedicated to um, this period of time in between the seasons. And it would, it would be painted yellow because yellow is the color of the earth element. And they would go in and actually just reflect on the previous season and harvest the lessons and the experiences and prepare for the next season. So that's kind of the richness of the earth element is this capacity to kind of come back to ourselves and reflect and prepare and ground and harvest and sort of come back to um, a sense of balance. So the earth actually manifests at four different times of year, but it, it said that it also manifests um, in late autumn uh, as well. So it kind of has these different expressions and it really represents the sense of balance between yin and yang and this uh, 
element of um, nourishment in our bodies, how we nourish ourselves, how we take care of ourselves, how we sustain ourselves. And so those organs are the spleen and stomach, which govern digestion and nourishment. So that's the earth element. And then we move on to the metal. So the metal element is where we come into the fall or the autumn, which is sort of what we're in now, although we're moving slowly towards the winter transition. Um, but uh, the metal element is this birth of yin. So just like the wood was the birth of yang, the metal is the birth of yin. So it's the beginning of the expression of yin, this calming, cooling principle of nature and of life. So in the fall, right, the the transition from the summer to fall, we start to have shorter days. Uh, we want to be inside more. We want to slow down. There's this kind of natural movement inwards and the movement of the metal is contraction. It's to come inward. Um, so that is the natural movement in nature at that time. And if you think of um, the trees, all well, out, out west it's not the same, but out east, right, all the trees are losing their leaves. But what's happening is that all the sap is being drawn out from the extremities and brought into the center of the trunk to prepare and, and preserve for the winter. And so there's this letting go, right? But in that letting go, there's a contraction, there's a pulling into the center. So that's, that's the metal element. And it's interesting because the organs are the lungs and large intestine. And um, the large intestine is all about letting go, right? Our capacity to let go. So the fall is really a time for letting go and, and um, letting go of any excesses to be able to consolidate and preserve our energy and prepare for the winter time. Sir, so, and uh, the color is gray or white. And then we move to the last element, which is the water. And the water represents the winter time. Oh, I remember what I was gonna say. So just to kind of follow the cycle, we're following the cycle in the seasons, but then we have the cycle in, in the lifetime, right? So the fire represents adolescence. Earth represents um, sort of adult life, like middle sort of, you know, mid twenties to 40s, let's say something like that. And that's, a you know, usually the time of life where we start to kind of focus and settle and ground into our career or our families or, you know, so that's the, the earth time. And then um, middle aged is considered the metal time. And then old age is considered the water time. So that cycle of winter, we live it in you know, the season, but we also live it in, in the t time frame of our life, as well as in the day. So the, the, in the cycle of a day, the wood is the beginning, it's the sunrise, and then fire is the, is the peak of the sun, so high noon, and earth represents um, the early afternoon or meal times because of nourishment, and the metal represents the, the early evening, and the water represents the nighttime. So coming back to the water, the water is the nighttime. It's the time where we rest and replenish. It's the fullest expression of the yin energy. It's when we're in the most darkness, the most cold, um, and the most inward moving function. So the way that cold um, the cold outer environment makes us come in and down to consolidate and preserve what is essential in our in our bodies. And that's the, the job of the kidneys and the bladder. So the kidneys really preserve and consolidate our essence energy uh, for the winter so that we can properly restore and prepare for the next cycle in the spring. So the winter time represents that sort of deep dive where we're really going in and nourishing and consolidating 
and and then the cycle starts over again. So the water moves to the wood, and in, in the cycle of nourishment, where one element nourishes the other, the water nourishes the roots of the trees to make the wood grow, and then the wood is used to generate the fire, right, to make the fire burn. When the fire burns, it creates ash, and the ashes nourish the earth. And the earth generates minerals, the metal. And then the metal, the minerals, nourish the water and make the water alive. And so that cycle of generation is really important because it means that if one element is out of balance, if we're lacking water, then we can't, the wood won't be nourished and it won't be able to grow. If we're lacking wood, then the wood is going to, we're not going to be able to have a fire. Um, and also if we have too much wood, then the fire is going to be too big and is going to burn everything down, right? So these elements, the idea from a Chinese medicine perspective is that these elements are in a dynamic homeostasis that allows for an experience of health and integrity. So health is not a static state. Health is actually a state of constant movement and adaptation to the changing environment and to the seasons. So from that perspective, really, in order to thrive, we actually have to allow for things to change. So health isn't like a state you achieve, but it's a state that you maintain and preserve and adapt as you go through the changing phenomena of, of you know, the environment and nature, but also of, of life and all the stresses. So the health and integrity of a system is really dependent on that capacity to adapt and be resilient to adversity. So each of us will kind of in our own lives and within every day and year go through these, this would we call, do we call it the nourishing cycle or energy cycle um, between these different elements? Yeah, essentially. Um, and then, but then there's another cycle. <laughs> there's a cycle that's called the control cycle, which is in the inner circle. And again, I wish I could do a drawing right now, but you could imagine an outer circle. And then there's actually like a, a star in the middle where one element controls the other. So for example, the water controls the fire, keeps it in check, right? So if there's too much fire, the water can put it out. The fire controls the metal. So the fire can melt the metal and change, uh, alchemize it and transform it. The metal axe is what chops the wood, right? We need the metal, the hardness of the metal to be able to break the wood and make it usable into fire. And the wood um, controls the earth by the way that the trees send its roots into the earth and breaks up the earth. And then the earth controls the water by damming it or the banks of the riverbed is what allows the water to flow instead of just being uh, going in any direction, right? So it can the earth contains it. So so it's actually a dynamic balance of the nourishing cycle and the control cycle. So the nourishing cycle allows each element to be generated and generative, and the control cycle or domination cycle is what allows things to stay uh, in check. And actually, from in the TCM model, it's called the the mother son relationship is the nourishing cycle. I mean, obviously, it could be mother, daughter, or father, son, whatever, it, the, the gender roles aren't as important, but the idea that it's a sort of parent-child relationship. And then the control cycle is a, is a grandparent-grandchild relationship. So it, in traditional Chinese culture, the grandparents were the ones that sort of set the boundaries, right, and held the rules. So there needs to be this dynamic balance of nourishment and structure, essentially, to allow for things to flow. 
Oh, it just sounds like life. <laughs> and then um, we've had uh, classes on Ayurveda here before. Um, and I know in that tradition, um, there people will have different constitutions that are um, like everybody has all of these elements in them, we learn, but um, they may be stronger or more of a, a driving element. Is that also similar in Chinese medicine? And if so, how do you know what your constitution or what your element is? Yeah, it's definitely it's um, similar in that sense. So those five elements, like you said, we all have them active in our system and we need all of them to be balanced. But yes, there is one that is most dominant usually. Um, and that is the one that will sort of identify not only our personality and the way that we go about our life and the choices we make, but also the susceptibility that we might have to certain health challenges or imbalances in in the organ system. So um, how do you find out what you are? I mean, there's like lots of quizzes online and things, but essentially going to a practitioner, it takes time to really identify it. There, there are many different ways we can identify it by the body shape and structure. So different features, for example, like deep set eyes or a square jaw or these different very subtle features we can see, or even in the color of the complexion, um, we can see it by the sound of hear it by the sound of the voice so the different sounds of different sounds in the voice can identify different elements that are dominant we can also um, sometimes smell it right so certain smells this if people have certain smells that are dominant then we can identify it so there's smell taste uh, maybe not taste but all the senses hearing seeing and then also I think probably one of the best ways that I am able to identify it in my clients and, and even just family and friends is really just through the personality because that usually comes out really clearly. So for example, like a wood type is sort of the kind of typical type A personality in the sense that wood types are very, um, they're leaders. They like to make things happen. They take action. They're, they're much more yang and extroverted than perhaps some of the other elements. So, you know, we can really see that in the personality type, um, in the way that people kind of go about their lives. Are you suggesting anything by mentioning wood? <laughs> <laughs> you do have a bit of a square jaw, Amanda. <laughs> I don't know. I'm you still, know. I'm still figuring it out but I think it's I think you could probably yeah you're definitely you definitely have that sort of leadership and initiative and making things happen and connecting people and it's a very sort of um, active kind of energy and you know in the imbalance which I don't really see in you but it can become like you know dominant or like a bully or someone who really just takes control and that kind of thing and and if so you know as a wood type you if if you are a wood type you can manifest not only in the balanced states but also in the imbalanced states so if you're over domineering or something like that but it can also be in a, in a lack right so you might have a really hard time making decisions or taking action um, if you're more in a lack of wood so it can yeah go either way uh you know what's the point of a good folk you talk if i don't get to you know, get a bunch of free advice. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, how one can tell when. Okay, so I get that we're we're like ideally we're trying to maintain health um, and work through prevention, and I like to believe that one could start um, kind of fixing imbalances before they show up as actual disease. Absolutely. So. 
how how can we start seeing within ourselves that some tweaking uh, might be in order? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, the first step is really being able to come into our bodies because I think that's probably the number one thing that is most challenging in our culture is that we're very much a, an intellectual based culture and we don't necessarily have um, tools and practices embedded in our culture to help us become embodied. And I think that as much as it's helpful to go and see a practitioner, if we can't even identify what's happening in our own system, then it can be difficult to get someone else to do that. So that that is the first step is really becoming embodied and starting to to be in touch with our rhythms and sensations and as basic as identifying what our poop looks like and how often are we urinating and how is our digestion and how is our sleep and how is our how are our energy levels so I mean these are the kinds of questions that you know in in a health consultation or intake I would go more in depth with but even just looking at sort of any chronic symptoms that might be coming up is a good first place to 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 work with I realize that I probably should have started by actually asking you what does what what does a healthy person look like in these details? I mean, and I know we talked a little bit about health and sort of your way of looking at it, but I feel like perhaps we don't even actually spend enough time saying what health looks like. You mm-hmm. know, health looks like how many bowel movements a day. Health looks like how much sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, health, you know, uh, so can you tell, like, what does health look like, um, kind of if you can make a, a statement across the board about that? That's a tricky one. Um, I mean, I don't know how much you want me to go in detail about bowel movements and urination. I spend a lot of time talking about that in my classes, and um, I'm very comfortable with it. But I don't know. Maybe our maybe our radio audience is not as much. Um, but anyway, I guess part of maybe like a more general statement I can say, or I actually I have more questions than answers about what health looks like, because I think that. Um, we are ever-changing beings and it's not like I said it's not a static state so you know my question is is health the absence of discomfort is it the absence of physical pain is it the presence of a sensation of well-being is it the presence of energy a sensation of energy and joy you know what I don't actually have the answer in a more existential sense in a practical sense I can tell you how many bowel movements or how much sleep but I think um essentially that is going to look really different for each person right so in the concrete you know um like 10 bowel movements in a day is not healthy, right? So everything um, from a TCM perspective is really about balance and moderation, right? Um, So there are certain times, for example, that are much better to go to sleep at. So the time between 9 p.m. and midnight is the most important time to actually restore your yin energy. And so if someone is always going to bed after midnight, that can lead to um, what we call a yin deficiency, which can manifest as like night sweats or hot flashes or more insomnia or things like that. So there, there are concrete things, but it's such a vast array that I don't know how much I can really go in detail at this point. But I, I kind of just want to bring that sense of curiosity in terms of, you know, or even just ask you, like, what does what does health feel like to you? Is it the absence of a state? Is it the presence of a state? How would you experience that or express that i feel like that's a challenging question and as you were even saying it i 
I, I guess I feel like health is a potential. Mm. And maybe that's because I have too much wood energy. <laughs> that's exactly how a wood type would respond to that question. <laughs> As I was even thinking it, I was yeah. like, "Ooh, this might be just really stereotypical." <laughs> um, yeah, but I, but I do feel like it is sort of the sense that one could mm-hmm. um, that that it, that there is the capacity for growth, change, um, like physicality, etc. Uh, mm-hmm. But I do see that that might be influenced by. Yeah, and I think what there's something that comes to mind as well as I hear you say that is just. Um, yeah, this idea that there, and I guess part of like my business model was about holistic health, right? So health is not just a physical state. Health is an emotional state. Health is an energetic state. Health is a psychological state. It's a spiritual state. So there are many different levels of health we can experience and ways. And, and in Chinese medicine, we consider all those things when we're talking about health. So someone who is physically healthy might not have any chronic issues or acute symptoms, but is depressed and struggling with mental health, right? So that even if physically they might be healthy, mentally they're struggling, right? And vice versa. And so there's this really intimate relationship between the state of the physical body and the state of the organs and the psycho-emotional state as well. So for example, and the organs in Chinese medicine are not like the physical, the physiological anatomical organs we talk about in Western medicine. We're talking about an energetic potential, right? So the the liver, for example, when we talk about the liver, we're talking about the energy of the liver, the energy that it emanates through the meridians. Um, And so the liver, for example, the emotion that's associated to it is anger, anger, frustration, rage, impatience, right? So in and of itself, an emotion is not healthy or unhealthy, right? It's a natural state of expression of energy and motion, emotion, energy and motion, right? And so when we get to a point where that energy can move, if we can circulate that anger, then it's, then it can be healthy. It's when it becomes excessive or repressed that then that becomes unhealthy, right? So kind of coming back to that question of what is health? Well, health is not the absence of emotion or the absence of physical symptoms, right? It's, it's our capacity to, um, to flow and transform through the cycles of change and adversity and maintain resilience, maintain a sense of balance, right? And so my teacher would often talk about this idea that we kind of have this sort of like range of um, within health, right? It's not a static state where we just, um, I wish I could show visually again, I'm doing, I'm holding my hand up straight in the air and, you know, there's sort of like that image of a pendulum going back and forth. Health is this wavering. We're kind of wavering as we adapt to the changing environment, to stressors in life. We waver. We can't ever really just be in that still point of now I've achieved health and I'm good, right? We're in this wavering. And in that wavering, there's room to respond to adversity. It's when we kind of go below the line. If we go too far to either extreme, then that's when we hit illness, Right. That's when we get to disease. And so the way to prevent that is to be able to track our pendulum as it's swinging and find the tools and practices that bring us back to center. Right. So from a Chinese medicine perspective, the things that bring us back to center are the things that are going to bring us in tune with the season and the environment that we're in. So, for example, if we're, 
in the winter time and that's the water element and that's the time where we should be slowing down the most and restoring our energy if we're still going hard and running fast and working nonstop, we're going to deplete ourselves and eventually go below the line so coming back to center in the winter is about slowing down right and and having the foods and um the and the practices that are going to help us find that center and maintain that center for winter and then that center needs to change so that's why health is actually a changing state of adaptation to our environment so um you started by talking a little bit about what we might do in the winter, so slowing down. What what else one would one do to prepare for the winter with their diet, with um, maybe other practices uh, that they have? Yeah, so one of the things I'm most passionate about is food and the way that we perceive food from a Chinese medicine perspective. So Chinese dietetics is the study of, of food through the lens of Chinese medicine. And um, in that perspective, we're really looking at uh, the energetic aspects of food. So for example, um, certain foods basically have yin qualities. And remember, yin is cooling, receptive, slowing down, damp, wet. And yang is more uh, warming, activating, uh, drying, those kinds of functions. So foods can be more yin or more yang depending on um, their energetic nature. And one of the best ways to find out what they are is looking at where they're grown, what time of year, and even their moisture content can tell us whether they're yin or yang. So if we think about like a mango, for example, a mango is very wet. It grows in, in warm climates and it is... Um, what was the other? Yeah, basically it's considered yin, right? So it's considered cooling and dampening. Whereas, or a banana, for example, right? Same thing. Whereas um, a sweet potato or a potato, let's say, because that's what's growing here, is dry and dense and grows on the ground. Oh, right. That's what I was going to say. Mangoes grow in trees, right? And a potato grows underground. So that underground roots, for example, root vegetables, have that density of energy and yang energy to provide the warmth and activation for the body, whereas fruits and things that grow off of trees are tend to be more yin and more cooling. And so one of the ways that we can prepare for the winter is by eating foods that are going to be more yang or more warming and activating because we're entering the coldest and dampest part of the year. So the idea is to balance our internal climate, our inner garden with the external environment. So if the external environment is cold and damp, we need to be warm and dry, which is why eating exotic fruits in the wintertime on Cortez is not a great idea because those fruits are going to be cold and damp which will lead to cold and damp in our inner environment. And that is going to make us feel cold and damp. <laughs> so not a good move. Um, so what we can do is just bring in more warming foods at this time of year. Um, so adjusting our diet, not only what we eat, but how we eat and how we cook. So the cooking methods are also a big part of it. So for example, slow cooking is one of the best ways to really bring. So the way that we move into winter in this slow um, restful way is also how we want to cook our food. We want to cook our food longer and slower. So 
baking, slow cooking, roasting, right? So these are the methods that are really going to draw, sort of consolidate the nutrients and um, energies of the foods versus like having a raw salad or uh, quick steamed foods. Um, Those are going to be sort of more, bring more of a a light, lighter energy that's more beneficial in the spring. So we want to have richer foods, root vegetables. Um, One of the kind of main ways to think about it is eating what's seasonal and local is what's going to put you into balance. So really focusing on what is available in our environment and um, what can store in the root cellar at this time of year and um, nourishing ourselves with warming foods. So things like even warming spices like cinnamon and ginger and licorice and these kinds of spices that bring warmth, cinnamon, cloves, um, star anise, those kinds of things, fennel, those are all warming and activating. And you mentioned what we can store. What about, um, you know, pears or apples that you've dehydrated and stored? Do we tend to stay away from those or because we've dehydrated them, does that change their energy enough? It does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, like I said, the way that you prepare something is going to influence it. So that definitely makes them um, more warm. And because they've grown here and we've just harvested them, they're, they have the sort of energetic imprint that our body needs versus apples and pears that we might get from California right now right so so what's more important is yeah what's growing here and if you think of you know the advent of refrigeration is relatively new um you know I don't know 150 years or something like that but before then what were we doing we were we were preserving foods and um, canning and fermenting and keeping things in the root cellar so all those things as long as we're working with local foods is really gonna be supportive at this time of year and what about, um, does traditional Chinese medicine say anything or advise around things like um, eating meat or dairy or uh, those kinds of things and when we might do those? Yeah, so um, from a traditional Chinese medicine perspective, meat is very yang. It's very warming. So it's actually very good at this time of year from that perspective because it provides that sort of more yang and warming. So things like bone broth, for example, having bone marrow soup is one of the best ways to kind of warm your system at this time of year. It's also very good to strengthen immunity. Um, So, yeah, meat can be very supportive at this time of year. Uh, And dairy is considered to be more damp dampening so it's mucus forming so it's not as favorable at this time of year because the weather is so damp and our internal climates are fighting that dampness already so dairy can actually uh, contribute to more of that experience of dampness and the re- the ways where those might be beneficial or not beneficial is really based on constitution but also imbalances so um when we're talking, when we're trying to identify any given imbalance, we have to go through all the symptoms and there can be many things happening, but usually it's going to be either an excess or a deficiency, a lack or too much of yin and yang. So you can have a lack of yin or too much yin. You can have a lack of yang or too much yang. And those symptoms will manifest in different ways, but 
there are um, certain conditions, for example, like um, a deficiency of yang. If you're lacking yang, then meat is very good because it's going to strengthen it. However, if you have too much yang, which can manifest as like excess heat symptoms, like sweating all the time, if you have a full red face, a lot of anger and sort of rage and that kind of thing, then eating meat is not a good idea because that's going to generate too much heat in an already overheated system. So, and when you're talking about yin deficiency or yin excess, dairy is actually really beneficial for someone who's lacking yin because dairy is uh, mucus forming and it builds yin, it generates fluids. So it's beneficial for someone who's lacking in fluids, someone who's more dry. And those symptoms, like I said, will manifest more as like hot flashes, night sweats, um, more of a dry type of skin or a constitution. Um, whereas someone who has yin excess, so excessive mucus, um, sniffles all the time, or just any kind of symptom of mucus showing up in the body, dairy is not a good idea, right? So there's eating with the seasons and balancing with the seasons, but then there's also balancing your constitutional imbalances and being able to, and sometimes there's a combination of those. You can have a yin deficiency and a yang excess. You can have a yang deficiency and a yin deficiency, right? So there's usually a complex um, situation going on, but that's one of my passions is being able to put those pieces together and identify the specific foods that could actually help to balance, balance that all out. So if someone's just getting started, um, it sounds like you would, of trying to like take control of their health in a more holistic perspective, it sounds like you would start by suggesting they um, eat with seasonally yeah. um, and bioregionally, I mm-hmm. guess we'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, where where else would they start? Well, I think it's very difficult to figure out your own issues on your own. So I think seeking help is really important, especially just with when it gets to a point of working with chronic issues, because there are a lot of things out there that say like, you know, um, everybody needs to be eating keto or everybody needs to be intermittent fasting or, you know, these ideas that like, like a health trend, like this is what's healthy. And the trap of that is that it's not taking into consideration the actual um, unique, complex system that we are and the complex imbalances that are at hand. So for example, um, and intermittent fasting, because we were kind of talking about that a bit earlier too, it can be really beneficial for people with more excess type patterns because it gives the body a chance to sort of rest and digest and and sort of burn through some of the excess that might be there. But with someone, for example, who um, has like more hypoglycemic tendencies, which from a Chinese medicine perspective would be like a spleen deficiency or a blood deficiency, then that's not a good idea because they those types of people actually need to eat every two hours for their digestive system to, to be building blood. And so that's where it can be um, tricky in terms of seeking out information to you need to first identify what your imbalances are, which really is you need a, a skilled practitioner to help you with that. Uh, once you're able to identify that, then you can look in more into foods and uh, potentially herbs. And also, you know, with acupuncture, acupressure, there are other tools like moxibustion, gua sha, tools that can help to sort of balance those different states of imbalance. Okay, so that's one of the things I really want to talk about, which 
what are the tools um, of Chinese medicine? What are the things that someone might expect if they went to a Chinese medicine doctor to see? Um, yeah, just tell, explain some of the tools, what they are, what it looks like, how someone might use them. Yeah, well, I mean, I can speak, I can mostly just speak to my experience because every practitioner is completely different. But just to kind of zoom out a little bit, this is this is a an ancient tradition that's been around for 5,000 years. And essentially, um, it started a lot with cosmology. So the Taoist philosophy was a big part of it, understanding our place in the universe. And so we are actually a microcosm of the macrocosm. We're a reflection of what is outside of us. So within that model, what developed over time was these these ways of working with the movement of energy. So um, practices like Tai Chi and Qigong were really at the basis of all of this. And um, acupressure actually predates acupuncture by about a thousand years. Um, so they had to find the points on the body with their hands and they were using it. And acupuncture developed out of that for efficiency and also to treat people during the war more efficiently and quickly. Um, and so both are have kind of developed from that. Um, so acupuncture and acupressure are very similar in the way that I studied it. There are different kinds of acupressure like Jinshin Do and so on. The way I studied it was uh, very similar to what an acupuncturist would learn in terms of where the points are located and how we can move energy by using those points. So the points are essentially um, like little doorways or openings where the energy we can influence the movement of energy through the meridian and the meridians are channels of energy that are all over the body that are circulating life force or chi or energy and they the health of the meridians are dependent on the health of the organs and vice versa so if the organ is healthy then the meridian is healthy and circulating and if the meridian is healthy and circulating the organ will be healthy and and the the opposite is true if, if there's a, an imbalance so we can actually influence the state of the organ by working with these points along these meridians and the various points have certain functions and indications so for example when i was talking about a yin excess or a yang deficiency certain points will tonify yang of the stomach or tonify the yang of the kidneys right so these points will have direct action on the meridians and on um, the organs themselves. So that's sort of the idea of acupuncture and acupressure is having that influence, whether you're working with your hands or a needle. The idea is that the practitioner or the needle is sort of the channel where the energy can flow through. So working with intention is a big part of that, right? So if I have my hands on someone, I'm I'm intending that the yang of the kidneys be tonified. That intention is is part of it. But essentially the body and the meridian system is actually very wise and all i'm really doing is i'm supporting the natural wisdom of the body to 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 come to the light and come to um the awareness of what it already knows because our bodies inherently know how to be healthy they just need to be reminded and that's part of acupuncture and acupressure is just i like to think of it sort of as you have these different like cups right like if you were talking about five elements you have these five cups and some of them are, are overflowing and some of them are, there's nothing in them, right? So acupuncture and acupressure just basically kind of just like pouring one into the other. And sometimes you have to draw from an energy source if there, if there isn't enough water. Sometimes you have to drain them all. So it's just kind of this balancing act of, of circulating energy throughout the different body systems so that there can be a, a flow and, and a balance in all of them. 
So that's acupuncture and acupressure. And then there's moxibustion, which is um, a really awesome thing to have in this climate because it's essentially it's uh, mugwort. Most of you probably know this plant, right? Artemisia. It's a very local plant that grows um, and essentially it's dried up and compounded into well I mean there are different forms it can just be a powder sometimes people um, practitioners will use like a, a powder like a cone or a little right like rice size ball and burn it I work with the ones that are sort of like in an incense stick form so it looks like a very thick incense stick um, so you light that up and uh, you bring the stick close to the point you don't touch the skin with it with the stick with the powders it does touch the skin or sometimes it's laying on a piece of ginger or something but um, that brings heat directly into the points and yang energy so it's a very good tool to use to help to warm and activate and stimulate yang but also to dry so mugwort has a very drying property in that form so it can it's very good for damp type of conditions like even certain types of arthritis where there's a lot of dampness in the joints or um, digestive issues that have a lot of dampness like often irritable bowel syndrome and that kind of thing so moxa can be really good to help to expel the cold and bring a lot of warmth directly into the organs and one of the things i love about moxa is the short word for it is that I can just show someone, I show my clients how to do it and they can do it at home. So it's a very empowering tool. They don't have to come to see me. They can just do it on themselves. And it's important to know how to do it and when to do it and what points to do it. So you don't want to just uh, go and do it on your own, right? You need some guidance, but it, it does provide some, a sense of empowerment for people to be able to stimulate their energy every day and um, have that kind of um, self-care practice. Yeah, so that's mock Sebastian. And then there's um, gua sha, uh, which is very similar to cupping. So cupping is kind of a similar principle, but I work with gua sha, which is basically um, the literal translation is to scrape away fever. Um, so gua is to scrape and sha is fever or a rash is another translation. So the idea is, is um, when we have an external pathogen, like a cold or a flu, it gets sort of, it can get, uh, it comes in through the external system, right? The external environment, but it comes through and, and sort of attacks what we call the surface. In Chinese medicine, we have the surface and we have the interior. The surface is uh, our skin and our sinus cavities and um, also the space between our skin and muscles is where the immune system circulates. It's called the Wei Qi. And so so uh, an external pathogen, it could even just be like the actual, like a cold wind blows against your neck and you're not wearing a scarf. That comes in and can actually after a few days, go deeper into your organ system and lead to a colder flu um, if you're exposed to that pathogen long enough. So gua sha, one of the ways that it can be really helpful is by sort of pull, uh, liberating the surface. So it's a technique where you um, apply oil, it's like usually it's in the back, and then you use a tool. There are different gua sha tools. I use just like a ceramic spoon, like a miso soup spoon, and you just scrape. And you scrape the surface of the skin, um, and it 
pulls out any kind of inflammation or toxins or pathogens that are at the surface and pulls it out and clears it out of the surface. So it can be good for colds and flus, but also um, really good for pain. So especially pain that's coming from inflammation or an excess type of pain. So it can be really good for pain in the shoulders and neck, um, like chronic pain. And uh, so you scrape the surface of the skin and eventually it bruises. So it's a very safe practice, but the bruising is just basically the blood circulating again so it's actually a good sign if it bruises because it means it's starting to circulate and the bruise lasts two or three days and you know it's it's painful in the moment but usually people especially people who have chronic pain experience a lot of relief from it afterwards um, so it's a really great tool and, and it's the same principle with cupping you know cupping bruises and it pulls it sucks that out of the surface right so pain inflammation and that kind of thing I've, I've done cupping or I've had cupping done to me and so and it literally looks like cups and there's and I've done it both where the cups like it's cups and maybe moxes used to create a sucking yeah. and then I've also done it where um, they're sort of silicone mm -hmm. cups and they create and then you kind of create a, a suction so you can just can you just explain a little bit more so people can visualize um, I, I, feel, I feel like we're <laughs> yeah well I mean the the explain the cupping or the I'm not familiar as much with cupping. I wasn't trained, so I can't really go too much more in depth about it. Um, yeah, but it's, but it's the, the same, same principle. Yeah. It's sucking out pathogens from the surface of the skin. And are, so, are there other tools like herbs? Herbs, yeah, herbs are a huge part of it. Um, there are many different ways to work with herbs. There are the traditional patented formulas, which are basically formulas that are like already exist of herbs, right? So, because you can learn to work with the individual raw herbs and put them together. And I trained in that um, part way, three quarters of the way, and I didn't end up finishing partly because it was just such a huge endeavor that felt um, sort of a bit overwhelming for me but also just I had a lot of success working with the formulas and you kind of need to have your own apothecary and it's quite complex and at the time that wasn't uh, really where I wanted to go with my practice but um, but working in that sense it requires a lot more work because it, it gets so specific to the level of the grams and you change the formulas every time a symptom changes and it's very complex working with that way um, but uh, I'm still in touch with my teacher and have worked a lot with that as well and, and have had a lot of results from that but working with the formulas is is handy because it's very affordable working with a with a loose herbs can be very expensive like you can pay probably triple or quadruple what you would pay for the patented formulas just because like the time of processing and then it's also a lot of work you have to boil the tea and so it's it's just a lot more time consuming and mon it consumes more financially as well but the patented formulas are really affordable you can get them in Chinatown in Victoria uh, and they're specifically designed to treat patterns so for example I kind of alluded to like a yang deficiency in the kidneys so there's a formula for that there's a formula for a yang deficiency in the kidneys combined with a spleen deficiency, right? So there are certain patterns that we see recurring in imbalances that these formulas kind of cover really well. So um, so again, that's something you need a skilled practitioner to, to do with, with you, but um, it's something that you can kind of take over a long period of time. And what the herbs can do um, essentially is what you know acupuncture, acupressure, and moxa and gua sha do as well, which is just basically balancing your internal system. So, but what can be helpful is that, especially when we're dealing with deficiencies, so a lack of 
uh, yang or yin or chi or blood or these different energies that um, are required is that the herbs will really supplement that and generate that and bring more energy into your system. Um, they're very good for tonifying yin as well because it can be very difficult to strengthen yin. Moxa is really good for strengthening yang, but the herbs are very good for building yin. So yeah, it can be very helpful as well, just in the sense of being empowered. If someone can't afford regular sessions, then taking herbs regularly is going to be a way also to sort of maintain the process of rebuilding uh, over time between sessions and that kind of thing. Perfect uh, moment that you've paused so I can say that you are listening to Folk U Radio on CKTZ 89.5, Cortez Community Radio. We have traditional Chinese medicine in the spotlight today, and we're super lucky um, to have uh, not just one, but, um, but many uh, incredible neighbors bringing us their different um, takes on all for- forms of health. And today we are lucky to have Janine Myla um, with us. Uh, so thank you so much. So we were just learning a little bit more about the tools um, that uh, this ancient practice of health might uh, have in its, I don't want to use arsenal, that seems really military, <laughs> but it's in its gardening Garden belt. Chef. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and we and so do we get them all? We have acupuncture, acupressure, um, moxa, guasha, 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 cupping, and herbs. Yeah, there's also uh, twina, which is a type of massage as well that is used in traditional Chinese medicine. I I'm not very familiar with it, but it's it's a way of working with massage, working with the meridians. Um, and um, and then, of course, Tai Chi and Qigong, which are practices that help to circulate energy. So remember, I mentioned, too, that health is really circulation. Health is movement of energy. And so Tai Chi and Qigong is a way is one of the probably the one of the best practices that traditional Chinese medicine has to offer to actually help prevent um, disease or imbalances because it really allows it's ideally it's a daily practice that's done 15 20 minutes is enough to just allow for circulation of energy to flow throughout the system so there are these smooth movements that allow for um, blockages to become unblocked and to, to kind of harness energies from the cosmos so there's that sort of Taoist cosmology where we're sometimes in qigong harnessing energy of the sky sometimes we're harnessing energy of the earth we're we're mixing it together, you know, being able to sort of uh, tune in to ourselves as part of the macrocosm. That's part of the practice as well as just kind of placing ourselves in between heaven and earth and um, uniting those forces within us of yin and yang. One of the things I most admired when I lived in Vancouver is that there were um, mostly older Chinese women, but also a couple of men who would come out every single day, mm-hmm. rain or shine at the same time, and do their Tai Chi. I'm actually not sure how to tell um, the difference, but I think it was Tai Chi together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, what a lovely ritual, right? Both to have the community aspect, but also um you know, th- like it was really beautiful to to watch. They would just sort of quietly uh, <laughs> do it, and every once in a while, someone might 
uh, yell out, you know, a thing, and then they would like move to doing something else, and it was it was a beautiful um, ritual to witness, and I've always felt a little jealous of, <laughs> of that. Well, we can do some together on the beach. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe we can have a club. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there there are just some really basic practices that are really powerful and simple like it's not you know like in with yoga for example sometimes people can feel limited because you know they feel like they need to have a certain flexibility or uh, whatever you know it's very it's very accessible qigong is very accessible and easy to practice and very relaxing and calming and um yeah that community aspect is really great just kind of the way that you know whenever we gather all together and do something together it enhances the energy but you really feel it when you're practicing tai chi or qigong and there's just this sort of build up that happens i I feel like next we're gonna we're gonna be hearing about a group (laughs) on cortez Uh, so look for that yeah and there was one more thing i wanted to mention in terms of the tools that don't actually um necessarily apply to traditional chinese medicine but is part of my toolbox that i've been integrating more and more is um, flower essences and this is kind of one of the ways that i find really powerful to work with more that more psycho-emotional aspect of things so to be able to support different states of being and balance different states of mind and emotion and heart um, flower essences are really powerful to work with more of the vibrational element of life and so i work with mostly the bach flower essence but i have a few from different um, places as well but you know some of you might have just seen the rescue remedy bottles you can get in a pharmacy and whatever but the idea is dr bach you know realized that there when you walk into a room with a bouquet of flowers and you give someone a bouquet of flowers their whole energy changes right and they're not ingesting the flower they're not you know putting it into their body in any way it's just the vibration of the flower that enhances their experience and so part of the way that flower essences were developed was just using the dew off of a flower petal. And that's the level of subtlety of vibration that is used um, to create a flower essence. So usually you can just soak it in water and the sunlight or the moonlight. There are different ways to go about it. But essentially what it does is it balances certain states of being and works with, um, you know, if you if you think about like a yarrow, for example, that's a really common plant that's here. And um, the flower essence of yarrow actually helps to weave together the energy field so if for example it's really good for people who are hypersensitive to the environment or to sounds or light or um, are allergic to many things in the environment so yarrow actually kind of weaves the energy field and weaves the the pores that can sometimes be too open in those types of people but yarrow in the plant itself actually stops bleeding so it has that same kind of weaving function on the physical level as well as the more energetic vibrational level so it's it's really powerful to work with to help um, to support people working through different states and um, usually i'll make like a personalized flower essence uh, five or six different flowers that go into a little bottle and with um, a special word that you we come up with together and it's your little magic potion that you can carry around and it's really a support and it can work through different layers of the energy field and clear out different states of being you know so if someone is really um, really stuck in grief for a long period of time like there's a star of Bethlehem that can really help support a letting go process and so this is a powerful tool I feel to kind of help with that level of things 
is it similar to homeopathy? And then do you also, is homeopathy part of Chinese medicine ever? No. Uh, I mean, I think on a certain level, you know, even moxa is homeopathic in the sense you're not ingesting it, moxibustion. It's like it's it's coming into your energy field in a subtle way. But uh, not not to my knowledge, homeopathy isn't part of traditional Chinese medicine. I don't use it in my practice. I use it in my personal life a ton and find it very powerful in that way. Um, yeah. But uh, flower essences are are similar but different. <laughs> That's that's what people always say to me when I describe <laughs> <laughs> um, But I think I'm slowly starting to um, to understand them more. And I have used flower essences um, many times in my kind of healing practice, and um, really love them. Although I don't feel like I've yet gotten to the place where I can create them like a formula for myself or Mm -hmm. understand that but that's why there's amazing people like you well yeah i mean i can't even do that for myself either we need other people like we we need other people to help us see our blind spots we can't really you know i know for myself like i i can't figure out my own my own flower essence bottle on my own either (laughs) yeah okay good i feel better (laughs) community yes so good so essential um, okay, so how can, can you talk to us a little bit about? Um, well, do you feel like we're ready? I, I, I want to like throw some things at you. Like, okay. what if? What if? Yeah. What would you do? Do you feel? Is that okay? Is this sure. good timing? Okay, let's try. <laughs> um, all right. Well, one of the things that um, I happen to know about you and your practice um, is that you've done a lot around menstrual health. Mm-hmm. Um, and helping support a woman in her cycles. Can you talk a little bit about your how you view menstrual health and why you think it's important and then where you go if someone is having menstrual problems? And I guess that's a huge field. So yeah. let's say irregularity um, in their periods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I just want to share a little bit about how I came to that in my, in my practice because um, – it's something that I feel that's really close to my heart in in what I've learned over the years. So um, I guess it was maybe 10 years ago or so, I took this workshop in Montreal in, in it was called Rhythme Femina, which translates to feminine rhythms. But um, it was a, an herbalist in Montreal who developed this this sort of journey of exploring and learning about menstrual health through learning about the physiology, the anatomy, but also integrating um, herbs, Western herbalism, and sort of a more shamanic approach to exploring the different archetypes that play out in different phases of our cycle. And it was a really powerful experience for me because I had always felt like there was some kind of great power and mystery in my menstrual cycle, but I didn't really know or understand what that was. And I felt that a lot of my cultural and societal upbringing was just, there was just so much, there's so much taboo around it. And it's not something we really talk about. And even, you know, the moments when someone first starts bleeding like that is a big moment and how we, our environment and our parents and our family and our culture defines that can also define our experience of it. Um, as we as we grow older so that was a really revolutionary experience for me and I ended up um, 
recently becoming a facilitator in that work and teaching that over the last few years. Uh, and really with this focus and this idea of education, because I think that we don't have enough understanding and education around what is actually happening, what's what hormones are active and when, uh, what is really the anatomy of the female body and how does that play into these different phases of the cycle. So this idea that there are sort of four phases of the cycle that uh, where there are different fluctuations of hormones in each phase, that there are also certain archetypes that are and energies that are more accessible at these different phases. And there's this idea, I think, as well, speaking of societal and culture aspect where we need to be the same all the time. Like we have to just be productive and action oriented and get stuff done. And in a female body, if we're bleeding, that's not really what is available really is there there are certain times where action and um, intellectualizing and analysis and reflection and sort of action oriented process is really easy to access and there are certain times where actually our brain and our hormones are really much more focused on the intuitive and the listening and the more the right brain, artistic, intuitive dreamscape, that aspect of things is way more accessible. And more than just that, it kind of takes over. And so if we try to be productive in that phase, it can be very counterproductive actually and frustrating because we're not actually in tune with what's really happening. So it's similar in the, in the sense of TCM where, we want to be able to adapt to the changing seasons. So within actually, you know, a typical 28 day menstrual cycle, we go through the four seasons, basically, right? So there's the the kind of the springtime is the beginning after bleeding when we sort of restore our energy and there's this um, renewal of FSH, which is the follicle stimulating hormones. And we have sort of like this, this potential and building and this new energy that's accessible. And then we go into the summer, which is ovulation. And that's the fullness of estrogen and sensuality and mothering. And we just want to experience life and connect and, and be creative and sensual. And that's really, you know, um, active around that time and then we go into sort of what's typified as the PMS phase the premenstrual phase which is actually when we have a lot more progesterone that's secreting and this is actually progesterone is progestation so our body is actually focused on creating a nest for a potential baby you know even if we're not wanting to procreate that the body is preparing for that so there's this very inward focus movement similar to the metal element and the fall season right so this is this represents the fall and the fall is kind of an uncomfortable time it's windy and cold and you know and so that's sort of that time of the month is is a time where we actually um, and progesterone actually on a sort of more energetic sense allows us to kind of see through the veils and have contact with our deeper knowing and deeper wisdom and insight into dreams so this is a time where we can kind of have access to these parts of us that um, maybe are have been sort of underground or repressed in other phases of the cycle the first two phases of the cycle are really supported and encouraged in western society you know there's the kind of like maiden archetype and the sort of more active aspect in the first phase and the second phase it's more like the mother and the queen and the nurturer and that kind of element but in this phase it's kind of like the wild woman and it's the woman that the wild aspect of our nature that just kind of wants to break through all 
the societal norms and just say what's on her mind and be in touch with her raw truth. And that's not something that has been, you know, historically supported. I think it's much more supported more and more. But um, and then we move into the la- and the last phase where where we start to bleed. And that's really the phase of sort of uh, the deepest yin. So that's the winter. And that's the time where really we need to rest and restore our system. And so trying to push ourselves, especially in the first two or like two or three days is can actually lead to imbalances later on in that month because we're not following the natural rhythm. So the, the idea is that in order to be healthy and in tune with our menstrual cycle, we're in tune with these rhythms and with these subtle changes. And we can follow the, not only follow them, but not resist them. And we can allow these different waves to move through us and know that, hey, okay, maybe day one of our cycles, not the best day to like start our new project. <laughs> maybe wait till day eight when we have a renewal of energy. Um, maybe, you know, in our premenstrual phases, not the best time to have that difficult conversation with our family member. Maybe waiting till another phase, right? So it's these idea, these ways of adapting um, and understanding ourselves better through that lens that I think is really powerful and, and, um, I think I've just completely digressed, though. I don't even remember what your initial question was. I, I, I love I love this version um, so much more, and I okay. Um, I I I feel like that is such a big part of I guess of being a woman in our world is this sort of strange juxtaposition of wanting to kind of push through. Um, and like perform like society expects you to perform and, mm-hmm. and being there and using your skills. And then there's this other part, which is like, oh, how do we be true to a rhythm and a cycle that is inherent to our very being? And I, and I think that's not just women. Men have cycles, too. We're just really lucky mm-hmm. because our cycles are so obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when I was writing one of my books um, on on pregnancy and fertility, uh, one of the midwives I interviewed talked about she was also a pre uh, a, a menstrual educator, and she said like we're so lucky, like women are so lucky because they have this window into their endocrine system, and the endocrine system controls you know in very Western medicine like the endocrine system is what is involved with the hormones and regulation and sleep and all these things that are super important, um, and we can see into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, without needing to get x-rays or, you know, or, or, you know, take anything apart or do anything. Like we can tell um, when things are healthy and when they're not because mm-hmm. it's very obvious. Like do we have a regular cycle mm-hmm. um, uh, or do we not? Or, you know, do we have pa- like excess pain or discomfort? Like none of those are normal and they suggest that something's off. So when you when like what kinds of things would you find that women would come to you as like the most common issues that women have around their periods or is there even a common issue? Well, yeah, I think probably the most common thing is is um, irregularity like a fluctuating cycle, whether it's fluctuating between short and long or being absent for several months, um, combined with the sort of hormonal imbalances that can come with that. Because if you have a really long cycle, guess what period is going to be actually, what phase is going to take up the most time of that, right? Because it's the progesterone phase. So so it can be very difficult sometimes emotionally and 
um, physically as well, there can be a lot of like breast tenderness and symptoms that, that are challenging in that time. So I would say probably irregularity is the most common one. Um, and then that can be combined with things like pain. I've worked with a, lo- a lot of people with endometriosis as well, which is a very common pattern nowadays. Um, I've worked with a lot of of women who have had like IUDs or have been on birth control. And that has been a big part of my learning in my practice. And a lot of women who've come to me wanting to come off of those things um, to be able to regulate their systems. And so, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But I would say irregularity is probably the most common thing. And from a TCM perspective, usually it's very much um, the fault of the liver. There's there's usually an imbalance in the liver and uh, likely the spleen also, depending and possibly the kidneys. But um, working a lot with regulating the liver is a big part of it. And um, interestingly, the imbalance in that one of the imbalances in the liver is emotional dysregulation, right? And and fluctuating emotional ups and downs. And so actually learning to really harness the things that are coming up in those premenstrual times and working with them, those are messages from our inner self that are, you know, coming to, to speak to us and to bring their wisdom, different parts of us that have needs that aren't getting met. So that the process that I do with with women in those settings is really not just the hands-on work and the herbs and the food and all of that, but also um, diving into that more emotional process. While I'm working on them, we are exploring uh, different parts of um, the psyche and seeing what what is there and what those parts have to say and what they need and sort of doing that work of integration and connection with oneself that I think is a really big part of health and well-being. I just wish I'd had you in my life so much earlier and I feel like sending my um you know my young daughters um to someone like you to like start from the beginning seeing the the lessons that our cycle can teach us so that we can use them as partners so we can be our own partners and um you know and knowing how to uh, like, I guess, use our bodies as teachers mm-hmm. um, to seek that wisdom. It's so beautiful. Um, and uh, one of the things that that got me thinking about is if you know that you're struggling with like you know, things that might be liver or spleen, maybe even gallbladder. Um, I think um, a lot about the springtime because you've said that are related to those systems and the kind of desire I feel like spring and fall our bodies want to like cleanse and um and and get rid of things that we've made build up do you recommend that people um participate in forms of cleansing and and what are some basic forms of cleansing that would be safe for people when they're getting started yeah TCM views cleansing as um a way to release excess that is helpful in cases where people have excess types of patterns so again it's kind of the same thing as saying like well intermittent fasting is good for everybody cleansing is not good for everybody and especially people who have more deficient type patterns it's not a good idea to go on major detoxes or fasting or things like that because actually what they need is the opposite they need more tonifying and building so it's really more a case-by-case thing i would say probably um springtime is a better time for cleansing naturally our bodies tend to that naturally we eat less we eat lighter we you know um 
are more in movement and circulation and that kind of thing. The fall is actually more a time to consolidate and build, less a time to cleanse. So it's really kind of case by case um, to see how that works. But I, I would say more likely than not, cleansing is probably not helpful <laughs> because we Ten, especially in the case of menstrual irregularities, they're usually they're more deficiency type of patterns. And so we need to balance and harmonize and tonify rather than disperse and release. Nice. Um, so one of the complaints that I know a lot of people um, deal with these days uh, is insomnia. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that uh, Chinese medicine can do for insomnia? Yeah, definitely. And I am uh, very much close enough to that experience. That's been one of my um, health challenges for a long time. And I've learned a lot just even through treating myself and being treated around that. So I can just speak very humbly about that Um, in the sense really what we're working with is often the fire element. Um, The fire element represents the heart and the small intestine, and it represents the heart is the house of the Shen, which is the spirit in Chinese medicine. So the spirit is really like our, our connection to what is greater or to the divine or our sense of purpose in life or, you know, kind of the way that you would conceive of our soul or the, the spark in your eye, that's the spirit. And when the spirit is connected and activated, then we, um, can really feel alive and vibrant and connected and that kind of thing. So what happens often, um, when we're dealing with insomnia is usually it's going to be some kind of heart, deficiency or it could be excess as well but usually either in the blood or the yin aspect of the heart um and and so what's going to happen there is that the the shen or the spirit if there's a deficiency in the heart it can't root it can't have a seat in the heart so that because the spirit lives in the heart if the heart is lacking in energy then it's like it's like having a house without walls right so it's like the spirit can't actually root down so the spirit will travel and so it can be restless agitation dreams inability to fall asleep inability to stay asleep Um, it can also be with the liver as well that is out of balance because of the relationship between the wood and the fire Um, it could also be sometimes the kidneys. So there, there are many different possible patterns in insomnia, but usually, um, treating it with herbs and, um, and points is more effective. Um, I would say probably less so with food, you know, unless there's really like a significant blood deficiency, um, which is going to be treated more through foods. But, um, yeah, so, and I found one of the best ways is really doing that more of a flower essence, working more with a sort of psycho-emotional aspect of things as well. I imagine when you're dealing with insomnia, anything that's sort of like, oh, you know, we'll slowly resolve this problem probably feels pretty like, oh, no, I'd like to resolve it right now. Thank you. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) And so speaking of which, can Chinese medicine also be used for acute um, situations? So and by that, I mean, like you're bleeding profusely. Absolutely. Yeah. um, uh, And then and like how? (laughs) Well, uh, in different with all the tools that I named, really, I mean, there's one example I can give that's maybe a little bit gross, but I'm just going to give a sort of general picture of it. But I had a friend whose grandmother was in the hospital. This was several years ago in Montreal. And she called me and and said that um, 
her grandmother was in her early 80s and she was um there was a major blockage in her intestines and the stools were coming out from her nose and the doctors were pumping her with medication and it wasn't doing anything and they were going to potentially operate on her if nothing changed and my friend called me was like is there any way you could help and so I said I can try like I'll come and see and so I came and I did a treatment on her and I just used my hands I just used acupressure I worked down the stomach meridian and the large intestine meridian the next day the stools came out the right way (laughs) and she didn't have to have surgery and all I used was my hands I, I spent an hour with her and I moved the energy down because it was going up and I, I helped to move the blockage and help the energy go down. And this acute situation where she would have had surgery was able to be avoided simply by a little bit of acupressure. So it was really powerful and, and you know, for me brought some hope in the sense that I would love to be able to work in tandem more with the medical system because I think there's a really beautiful way that east and west can meet and and work together in that sense you know so it was important for her to be there because to have everything monitored but um that little treatment was able to to make it make it move (laughs) and are you hearing situations uh and cases where um where acupuncture acupressure or chinese medicine uh is being embraced more and more in the in the Western medical system? Because I've been hearing more and more of hospitals even who are welcoming in, you know, acupuncture and acupressure. Um, there's now more uh, recognized peer-reviewed science around the benefits of, of Chinese medicine, particularly as it relates to pain. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, I was seeing that more in Montreal. I would say more in the major cities probably where that's being integrated. There's still a lot of skepticism around it, I think, in in the medical community. But I do think that it is opening up a, a little bit at a time. And, and I think just that awareness of, um, I think in, in the Western medical world, there's just a growing awareness of like the benefits of eating properly and exercising regularly and, you know, mental health and all these things that Chinese medicine has been, you know, talking about for 5,000 years, um, that's starting to be integrated more. So even if it's not from an Eastern perspective, I think that there's that element, that common ground of, okay, how do we maintain health and prevent um, imbalances and illness? You're listening to Folk you Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. We are getting a traditional Chinese medicine 101 today. Uh, I'm going to let us have a couple moments of music so that if you want to call in and get your opportunity to have a you know <laughs> free consult, um, then this is your chance. Uh, once again, you may call in safely. You don't have to worry. Do not go on the radio. You get to talk directly to Janine and ask you ask her your question and then she can uh, answer you on the radio so we can all learn. So don't be shy. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. 250-935-0200. Wish to Lord, never been born Died when I was a baby Never gonna see your two brown eyes Eating salty gravy Eating salty gravy Two, three, four 
Listening to Folk U Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM or on the web, perhaps at CortezRadio.ca. So you just listened to Joni Mitchell, and before that, it was Barley Wick, both great Canadian artists. We are really lucky today to have on our, our wonderful neighbor um, and our educator in all things Chinese medicine, Janine. And we were just talking about some specific kind of like things that could go wrong and how one might use Chinese medicine to help them go right again. Um, and right before the break, we were talking about uh, about pain uh, and where in what ways the Western medicine system is starting to recognize or not um, recognize Chinese medicine and some of the tools that Chinese medicine offers like acupressure 
Um, and I'm wondering what you like what you see as some of the benefits for for pain or for people who are experiencing pain and how Chinese medicine looks at pain. Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that I often um, will tell my students is that every condition has probably like a dozen different possible ways that it can get expressed. So the difference between Western and Eastern medicine is that in Western medicine, there are conditions like fibromyalgia, for example. That's a big, that's a label that has a big box where a lot of different symptoms get put into. Um, whereas from a TCM perspective, we always have to look at everything through the eight principles. They're called bagang. So they're eight principles that allow us to assess any given imbalance um, through the lens of temperature. So hot and cold, that's two of the principles. Then we have um, the level of strength. So I've kind of alluded to it to, to it a bunch of times, um, s- strong and full or weak and deficient. So I've talked about excess and deficiency. That's the second, uh, the third and fourth principle. So hot, cold, excess, deficient. And then we have on the surface or interior. So I've spoken a bit about that, right? Conditions that are on the surface versus on the interior that are affecting the internal organs versus the surface, the skin and the muscles and the immune system. So anytime we're looking at pain, we need to ask all these questions. Is it hot or cold? Is it excess or deficient? Is it on the surface or is it on the interior? And these are the questions that will allow us to identify the nature of the presenting imbalance and then also how to treat it and how to address it. So fibromyalgia, there can be a hot excess type of pain on the interior. There can be a cold excess. There can be a a cold and deficiency, there can be a heat and deficiency, right? So all these different combinations, and there are eight different kinds of combinations and permutations of what's possible, not to mention the combinations of those combinations of different um, imbalances. So in any given situation, that's what we need to identify in order to effectively treat. Because for example, if we work with anti-inflammatories from a Western medicine perspective, which tend to be... um, cooling, right, which can be beneficial when there's heat present, but not all inflammation, inflammatory symptoms that are seen from a Western perspective are actually considered heat from a Chinese medicine perspective. Sometimes there are cold conditions from a Chinese medicine perspective, in which case having cooling substances would actually make it worse, right? So that's where figuring out whether um, what the presenting imbalances is, is what's going to allow you to treat it effectively. Um, and then we also have uh, the chi in the blood and and um, which in order to be healthy need to be circulating. And so generally pain is often coming from a stagnation of either chi or blood in the body. And so when the chi gets stuck, it can build up and create tension and pain. So that kind of brings us back to that idea of circulation of chi and movement of energy and life force is what allows us to be pain free. So identifying all those different imbalances would be the way to address pain um, and is going to be very unique uh, from person to person. And while it seems complex, what I also feel is from a Western 
Western medicine perspective, what we have seen is that it often is not enough of a robust model for us to get to the root of things. So fibromyalgia is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Um, it is like doctors have in many cases been slow to even consider it real. And now that most doctors do consider it real, it's sort of like nobody quite knows what's going on because, well, you know, like maybe the system hasn't been quite nuanced enough for us to look at it. Um, so that's, so while on one hand I think, oh, Chinese medicine has a complicated way to look at it, um, I also feel somehow closer to right or maybe getting to the place where, for instance, you can get pain-free um, because we've certainly seen in the Western medicine uh, system that we fail to have enough tools um, and it's one of the reasons that we have um, an opioid crisis. And I know that's a mm-hmm. huge simplification, but that is many other shows. <laughs> so, uh, so I appreciate your um, approach to it. What? Um, uh, oh, I, I really want to go back to a little bit more about digestion. And I feel like this is probably a huge series of complaints that people come to you with. Mm-hmm. Um you know, one of the things I wonder is, do people come to you at the first sign of things going wrong? Or do most people who come to you, you know, with digestion at the heart of their problem come to you many years later when things have started manifesting in, you know, in pain or um, in weight gain, weight loss, uh, you know, or some, you know, something more extreme? Tell us about like what actually brings someone to you and then what we can do about digestion. Yeah, well, people can come in all different stages, but definitely I think, um, you know, there's this idea that like the body is always whispering to us, but we tend to not hear it until it's screaming, (laughs) right? So that's part of that like daily practice of embodiment that I was talking about is the more we can actually tune in and listen to those whispers, the less it has to become a scream. So that's just a little little tangent on that but um usually people will come with full-blown you know irritable bowel syndrome bloating pain indigestion um loose stools diarrhea constipation these kinds of things usually they'll come in the more acute stages because maybe you know some people consider frequent stools normal or loose stools normal but then it degenerates and becomes more and more and goes to 10 times a day i'm saying that in part because um when i first had that sort of breakdown in crisis like I had what kind of was diagnosed as irritable bowel syndrome so I I know from firsthand experience just how debilitating that can feel but tracking it back to my sort of more adolescence I could see sort of the signs and symptoms that pointed towards that and I didn't address them because I didn't know like I just didn't know right so um in terms of how to work with that again like everything has to be filtered through those eight principles hot cold excess deficient surface interior right so just any single condition or or case that comes in needs to be processed through those um, parameters that being said the most common types of digestive imbalances are usually from cold Uh, and deficiency. So cold and deficiency is what we call yang deficiency. So there's a lack of yang. Remember, yang is that warming, activating, metabolizing function of the body. 
So if we're lacking that, then the digestive system can't properly break things down and assimilate. And one of the reasons why that's so common is partly the way that we eat as a culture, as a, as a North American culture, uh, fosters a cold and damp internal environment. So one of the things I kind of alluded to at the beginning of the talk, but this idea that, um, you know, foods have energetic temperatures, but then we also have the physical temperature of food that really impacts our digestive system. So the stomach uh, is, we can imagine it like a cooking pot and the fire underneath it is the spleen. So the spleen and the stomach are essential for digestion. And actually, you know, most of us have gas stoves on Cortez, you know, when you have that pilot light, that's the kidneys. So the kidneys is like the, are the initial spark that lights the fire of the spleen that lights the stomach. And so if you imagine the pot it's a pot of boiling water and it needs to be at a certain temperature in order in order for the foods to properly break down. So if you, let's say you want to cook your carrots and potatoes, you put them into the boiling water, they can properly break down and get assimilated and digested. Um, now let's say what happens if you put a tray of ice cubes in that boiling water? Amanda, what happens to the water? It cools down. It cools down. And then what would happen if you put your carrots and potatoes in then? They would be crisp instead of cooked. Yeah. So that's what happens um, with your stomach when you put in foods and drinks that are physically cold or ice, uh, icy. Then what that does is it cools down the internal temperature of the stomach. And then the stomach doesn't have the fire to properly break the foods down. So the foods start to accumulate, leading to indigestion, bloating, gas, um, and then the cold accumulates as well. And that's what leads to the loose stools, diarrhea, undigested food in the stools and so on. So one of the most fundamental principles, if you can remember one thing from this talk, the rule that applies to all constitutions across the board, whatever your imbalance is, no cold foods or drinks. Physically cold foods and drinks are going to dampen and weaken your digestive function so if that's the only thing you remember from this talk and you know i can already hear other pe people saying oh, yeah. what about ice cream i know the whole <laughs> island just groaned and they said you know what i, I hate this show <laughs> i know i know it's the worst um but i want to give I want to give a few examples about this first of all i'll say if you do need to have or want to have some ice cream then just have a cup of hot tea either before or after to warm up your stomach. Just that's one little thing you can do. Um, that being said, you know, um, warming up your stomach. So the opposite is true. Having physically warm foods and drinks are gonna, is going to strengthen your digestion and nourish that internal fire. So avoiding cold foods and drinks is a big part of it. So I have this this story of this client of mine who is um, in his early 60s and he was coming for back pain, chronic back pain, lower back pain, which is from a Chinese medicine perspective, a classic kidney yang deficiency, what we call. Um, and so it's a lack of yang in the kidneys. And so I was doing all the usual treatments, acupressure. I did a lot of moxa to warm him up because he was cold. The kidneys were cold. And he would come back and say, he would come for, uh, he would come every week and he would come back and say, you know, it was a little better for a few days, but then it came back. And it was like that for a few weeks. And I had looked through his diet and I had eliminated like a lot of cold, damp foods and, and had encouraged him to have more warm. And I was just kind of stumped. And I was like, is there something else that you're having 
um, that's cold. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm having ice cream every night before bed. <laughs> and I was like, bingo, you know, I was like, well, that's your problem. Like you're and he was like, what do you mean? You know, I was like, well, that's that's directly bringing cold into the kidneys. The kidneys hate the cold. They need warmth. And I, you know, I explained it to him from the, you know, educational perspective. And he was very disgruntled and was just kind of like, well, I don't know about this. I was like, just try it, you know. So um, he felt better. He So I did the session. He went home. He felt better. And then um, he didn't have ice cream for a few days. And then he had ice cream. And the next day his back pain came back. And then he was convinced. He was like, oh, my God you're right. I got it. Right. And then he, he stopped eating ice cream for uh, on a regular basis, at least. Um, and his back pain never came back. And so it was as simple as that for this particular person that was holding him back from really healing and warming his system up enough. I feel like there's a whole Island who's going to stop having back pain or, <laughs> um, just decide that it's worth it. Uh, to eat their ice cream. That's not me. I'll give up anything to not have back pain. But um, I also like your practical tip of, well, you know, if you have to, then do some hot tea before or after. So I'm going to, like, this is, I think, the most challenging thing that I have, which is what do you eat for breakfast? (laughs) Yeah, I'm still challenged with that. (laughs) Okay, so it's not just me. It's not just you. Um, Well, it depends on the time of year. Again, so at this time of year, having like warming foods is good in the morning. So oatmeal is great, Um, you know, eggs in whatever shape or form. Um, Generally, whole foods are beneficial, more beneficial than like processed foods. I mean, like bread or, you know, that like cereals and that kind of thing. So having a whole grain, whole food diet in the morning especially having enough of of those nutrients is really important and um the morning time is when the spleen and stomach is most active so it's your most most important meal my teacher would often even tell us that you know have dinner for breakfast like have a lentil soup or have some squash or you know a like you know so I know it doesn't sound as tantalizing and we're used to having like sweet things in the morning and pancakes and you know that kind of muffins and stuff like that but um unfortunately those are the things that are going to give us the least energy right and we we need more of a whole food basis so protein veggies whole grains that kind of thing sausage sure okay (laughs) (laughs) it's so hard the breakfast is hard i know okay so i i feel like we are just hitting just the tiniest tip of the iceberg here um and i know that you are have newly opened your practice on cortez so i'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what that means and also you've been doing education around this for many years i think about 10 years you said um, so if people want to know a little bit more about how you approach education and, and, you know, find you online and book a session with you or whatever, how do they do that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, just to give some context, so I, I've been in practice for about nine years, but um, about half a bit less than halfway through my practice, my teacher um, 
the school where I learned closed down and my teacher was invited to teach the program somewhere else. But she was like, I'm kind of tired of teaching the first few levels. And she trained me and another colleague to teach the program that I took. So it's been now almost six years that I've been teaching um, traditional Chinese medicine and acupressure program in Montreal at Setsuko. It calls Setsuko which is um, a massage school in Montreal. And right now their program has moved online since COVID started. So I'm very blessed and lucky to be able to continue to teach from a distance. Um, but uh, it's an 18-month to two-year program and um, can be expanded into natural therapy and naturopathy and includes a lot of um, nutrition and even Western herbalism as well. So it's, it's a really great program and a great school that I'm really lucky to be a part of still. So those offerings, um, there's some information on my website about that. And um, my website, so the name of my business is Aini Holistic Health, A-Y-N-I. And when I, I studied shamanic energy medicine for a few years, and I studied in a um, Quechua tradition from Peru, and this um, concept of Aini is a concept that always really resonated and essentially it's the idea of reciprocity and that in order for us to be healthy and well we need to be in right relationship and right reciprocity with all the different levels of existence so the microcosm of our environment um, and out to the different levels of social cultural and macrocosm the universe and so that that um, my website is uh, com. so a-y-n-i holistic Dot com. And so that there's some information about that. And um, yeah, my practice, I, I've kind of been a bit on sabbatical since I moved to Cortez and I'm just finally feeling more ready to to get back on track. And I have a studio in the South End. So I'm offering, um, usually I like to offer package of sessions because especially my, my sort of um, specialty is really working with chronic issues and for us to effectively work with chronic issues we need we need time um, so for the treatments to be more effective I, I would prefer to offer a group package of treatments so that someone can come and really benefit from it and uh, make it a little more financially accessible accessible as well so usually it'll start with a like a two-hour intake and consultation and uh, do a full health intake kind of thing and then including a lot of the tools that I named already in the session so yeah I think unfortunately actually my website the contact form on my website is a bit glitchy so that's probably not the best way <laughs> to get in touch with me um, but um, emailing me at um, ineholistic at gmail.com so the website name at gmail.com that's probably the best way to get in touch or get in touch with Amanda and she'll put you in touch with me it's always true I am here to help you can always email letter u at folku, F-O-L-K-U dot C-A, to ask me questions, let me know what you think of a show, to recommend future shows, or to be in touch with one of our amazing guests. So we are near the end of our time. This has been really uh, exciting and educational. Um, I'm, I've got a million questions that I will probably actually need to just book a session versus do endless <laughs> folk use um, on. So thank you so much for, for coming in today. Do you have last words of kind of um, encouragement for, for people who are trying to kind of take ownership over their own health? Yeah, just believe in your body's capacity to be well and um, listen to your body and be in tune with 
the season and follow your inner rhythms and eat warm and slow down. <laughs> I love it. And you can go then to Aini Holistic, A-Y-N-I Holistic.com and learn more about Janine Myla. So this is really close to, to my daughter's name, so it takes a little bit of practice. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to another show here of Folk You Radio. We, I love to hear from you. Uh, I love being able to do this, and I thank each and every one of you who helped create this community um, and, and make it all possible. So thank you ever so much, and I hope to uh, hear from you um, about what you would like to see. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk You Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk You or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folkyou.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folk U is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Radio dot C-A. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. It's embarrassing all the stupid things.